welcome in. Out of left field, presented by Farm Bureau, Bart Gregory, Charlie Winfield. On the road for the first time, taking this show on the road in Biloxi. Behind us, we have the Shuckers Ballpark, MGM Ballpark. Charlie, what a difference a week makes. My goodness. Last week, we were talking about losing two out of three against Long Beach State. Didn't feel great about this past weekend. You won three against Quinnipiac, but my goodness, what the last two games does for you from a mental standpoint going ready for SEC play. You found everything you wanted to find. You saw some big moments from your pitching staff. You saw some clutch hitting. So many things over the past two days that all of a sudden you feel positive about a baseball team that last Wednesday we're sitting here not quite as certain about where this team was headed. In fact, I I commented to you that if you could give me three out of the five games, including the three against Arkansas and the two here in the midweek, I'd take them and you could pick how to allocate the three. (laughs) We're two games in. The Bulldogs have already won two. We want all five now. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. So looking back at the past weekend, and we won't spend a whole lot of time talking about the Quinnipiac series, but this was the first dress rehearsal getting ready for conference play, that final non-conference weekend when you're playing – a team that coming out of the Northwest, Northeast who has not played well. They had just one win coming in on the weekend. And this was that chance for Chris Lamonis to finally get his rotation set. We've known for a couple of weeks we're going to be without JT again. And then all of a sudden you throw Christian McLeod on Friday. You put Will Bednar, a true freshman, in the Saturday role. You keep Sarantola in the Sunday role. I thought for the most part, you look at the starting pitching this past weekend, it was really good. Yeah, you can't complain about that. I have to ask you this, though. Were you surprised that McLeod got bumped up to Friday? I could have gone both ways with it. And, and you've seen coaches do both things. And you know, you can stay with uh, McLeod on Saturday. And what you're essentially doing is you're telling your team, we're going to give up Friday night. I mean, we're going to try to pick up you know three or four along the way against the horses of the SEC. I think what that does is it shows your team – Hey, let me tell you something. I think we've got a big dog that's good enough to go against anybody. You do. If you, let me make the opposite argument for a minute. You know, oh, I, I can understand both sides. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, one of the one of the things about Friday night in the SEC is you can be really good. Basically, on Friday night in SEC play, if you give up that fifth run, you're done. Yes. You've got to hold your opposing team to four runs or fewer to have any chance of winning that game, typically. The thing is, if you get into that situation – on Friday night where you've got to piece it together and you've got to go to the bullpen, those guys can sit on Saturday, come back on, on Sunday. There's a, I have always said that the Saturday starter in an SEC rotation is paramount. That's the difference between being a good team and a great team because on Saturday you have to have a guy go eat some innings. Now, here's the good news. You may have both. It may be that you move McLeod to Friday and you've got a guy who's a horse that can go up against anybody. And then you've got a guy now on Saturday who I think you've got a really, really good reason, a lot of really good reasons to feel that this is a guy who is going to be a big-time pitcher. And you look at Bednar and you look at Sims, Bart, it's really tough to think a time when you've had two freshmen come in who are just – that filthy well and that brings up a good point the last time we had two arms like this where you had two guys coming in in the same recruiting class true freshmen who had overpowering stuff 
I'm just trying to think back. The the thought I had was 2001, and they were both from the left side. We thought about Paul Mahalam, and Paul was you know, a guy right at 90. I mean, we're not talking about 94, 95 like we're talking about with, with, with Bednar and Sims. And then we signed Todd Nicholas as well. And Todd, you know, he just could, he couldn't ever get it together. He couldn't ever put it together. He was drafted, and um, but he had that one great outing at Arkansas in 2003 as a junior when he just completely shut Arkansas down on a Sunday. But those were two guys that I can think of that came in. They were hard-throwing lefties, but as far as just power right-handed guys, that when you look at Sims and you look at Bednar, these are two guys that are going to be weekend guys for you two years from now. Yeah, and I think part of it, too, I was just trying to think of somebody from any side. You go back to Bose and Jeremy Jackson were both really good, but Jeremy Jackson wasn't that at the time when he came in, he, he wasn't that dominant, overpowering guy. DeBose obviously was. But if you go back to the 80s and the 90s, it was very seldom that you had those big, overpowering guys anyway. I remember the buzz around Mississippi State when Reed Cornelius was signed. And everybody was just going crazy because this guy throws 90. He throws 90. Well, everybody throws 90 in the SEC now. And now it's not just – one of the worst indicators of a guy being a good pitcher in today's game is the radar because everybody's throwing 92, 93, 94. But the question is what else do you have? Are you throwing it straight? Do you have some movement? These guys just have that something else that make them – make you feel really, really good about where you're headed with those guys. You know, Bednar went five and a third in the uh, Saturday game. Gave up one run on two hits and five and a third. Struck out eight, walked two. So that's a good start for your first ever start, and it's a Saturday start. And then you give up some runs, you know, late in the game, and Quinnipiac takes a lead. And I know there was, you know, there was there was a lot <laughs> there was a lot of fireworks at the end of that game. But at the end of the day, you won the ball game. We've lost some games like that. We won a game like that on Saturday. I don't apologize for anything at all. Anytime you come up with a win, and you can debate all day long, and it was debated well on Twitter about whether that was a strike or a ball the catcher got thrown out on, and it was almost fifty-fifty when you had legitimate people looking at it, non-Mississippi State, non-Quinnipiac, and I said that about nineteen different ways this weekend, and I apologize to the fine people of Connecticut, but I'm sorry, it it is what it is. Um, but at the end of the day. We won that game. And then on Sunday, you come back. Just the way the pitching has, has gone this weekend, Dunlavey coming out of the pen just kind of calmed the waters in the Sunday game. It did. Dunlavey, we, we've talked about that. There's that Carlisle Kessler, David Dunlavey experience factor that is going to have to play heavy if this team's going to have a great season. And Dunlavey gave you what you needed to have on Sunday. Sarantola you know, struggled through three innings. Dunlavey comes in, and he basically just blanks the, the opponent for three innings. You can't ask for, for much more than that. Then, By the way, outside of the movie Bull Durham, can you think of a time that a catcher has been thrown out that emphatically? Uh, maybe on a tag? No, I can't. I, I can't recall that. Um, and to be honest with you, Charlie, I mean, I caught. I was a catcher. And you have that rapport with an umpire. Um, and, and just thinking back to it, it, it was – and just by seeing the tweets the next day, I don't think it really sunk in. And I think that's one of the things that will sink in 
um, to the to that catcher later on down the line about how much you hurt your team in a situation like that. And here's the reason why: is when you're tossed out of a game and you see your pitcher turning around, telling your infielders, "Calm down, I got this." Then all of a sudden, he's got two jobs. He's trying to throw strikes to end the game, and he's also trying to play team psychiatrist. Okay, you can't be thinking about anything on that mound except the next pitch. And he was thinking about calming the waters of his teammates, and then he couldn't throw a strike. And hey, the game was nowhere near over at that time. It was not over at all at that time. But I tell you what, going forward to the midweek, past oh, two games boy. against Texas Tech, you know how many question marks did we have? early in the season about the bullpen. And we talk about Landon Sims, and we talk about, you know, Spencer Price, who has been just unbelievable on the back end. Dunleavy had a tough night Tuesday night, but then you bring in Landon Sims, the freshman, two and a third of work, one run, one hit, and then Spencer Price closes the door. Then on Wednesday, you get a great start out of Carlisle Kessler, well, it wasn't that what you wanted from Carlisle Kessler. You wanted a guy who could come in in the midweek and do what he did today, clean up some messes on the weekend. He did everything you could want him to do tonight. Absolutely. Carlisle Kessler, Riley Self, Spencer Price. But how about Houston Harding? I mean, the thing that Houston Harding did Tuesday night against Texas Tech was he did not throw balls. He got to strike one early. He made them put it in play. He got four strikeouts, no walks. He gave up two unearned runs. So I tell you what, when you start factoring in, you're playing the number two team in the country, and you're trying Houston Harding out there, who was just big time. And then Kessler in, in the second game, that was money. And, and, Charlie, we talk about that loss early in the season, you know, the RPI loss that you, that you have you know, back in that, uh, that second weekend against Oregon State, who was you know, not very good. Then you had the midweek loss against Texas Southern. Yes, that one's going to hurt. But let me tell you something. These two in the midweek are going to help that a lot. Oh, they are. And, look, I thought Jackson Forster threw it pretty well tonight, too. I thought he you know, gave up a run there in the eighth inning. But, you know, he was running it up there pretty quick. And, Boy, Spencer Price, though, that's the guy who – there's so many places you can go to be excited, and you appreciate the quality job that people did. Landon Sims just has something, and all of a sudden Spencer Price seems to be the guy you remember from a few years ago. He looked really good. And the past two nights against Texas Tech, I mean, you've got nine hits in the game Tuesday, ten hits in the second game, and so offensively, this team, and yeah, if, if and we'll talk about this later on in the show, about when you had injuries early in the season, and you, you knew JT Ginn injured after that first week, but then the injury to Tanner Allen, that really just opens up something in your lineup. It really makes you mix and match a good bit more because you were already doing a little of that in left field, and now all of a sudden you bring right field into play as well. But the thing you're getting now is you're getting more production up and down the lineup. Josh Hatcher is, is getting hot a little bit. Rowdy Jordan is seeing the ball much better. But when you get 19 hits back-to-back -back nights against a very good Texas Tech team, things are kind of looking up. And it's getting a little bit warmer weather, and some guys are just better hitters when it comes to warmer weather. When you look at Rowdy Jordan, who after tonight's hitting 308, Rowdy's a guy who has never been good before about April. And yeah. all of a sudden, you've got him over 300. When Tanner Allen got hurt, I think what it did is it really put the pressure on Foscue, on Hatcher, on Rowdy Jordan and Westberg. 
those guys now, your kind of group of five became four, and they it put a lot of pressure on them, I think, to produce, and that's what they've done. In fact, look at the top three in the order tonight. Jordan had two hits. Westberg had a hit. Hatcher had a couple of hits. You know, you have a, a couple of doubles out of that group as well. So all of a sudden, you know, a team that's uh, you know starting to starting maybe to find its way. Now you got to find a way to start hitting in the bottom of the order. Yeah, but if the top of the order can do its job, then it makes it a little bit easier for things to fill in behind it. Bulldogs now 12-4 and four as we get ready for conference play. We'll talk about that in the final segment as we set up the Arkansas weekend for you. This first segment, of course, brought to you by Farm Bureau, our friends at Farm Bureau. Go with the home team at favorites.com. If um, you're in any area in the state of Mississippi, the thing that you have, the luxury of having, is you can go into your town and you know that you've got guys that uh, that drop their kids off at school to, in the line with you, the people that have been around that community for a long time and people that you can trust and people that you can talk to if something goes awry in your life. And that's our good friends at Farm Bureau. Well, when we come back, we'll take a look back at some of we talk about some of these midweek games where state travels and plays neutral site games. We've had some great neutral site memories over the past uh, 15, 20 years, even back to 30 years. Charlie can remember all those games, and I can't. But we'll have all that for you when we come back on our Look Back segment brought to you by Country Pleasing Sausage. You're listening to Out of Left Field, brought to you by Farm Bureau. Bart Gregory and Charlie Winfield, appreciate you hanging out with us once again this week. Going out of left field, presented by Farm Bureau, Bart Gregory, Charlie Winfield. Man, everything's been so good with the show so far. Appreciate our friends watching on Facebook Live, our people that are listening on a podcast, listening on WFCA 107.9 FM out of French Camp, and it's uh, it's been really well received so far, and we appreciate your comments each and every week. And this segment, our look back, brought to you by Country Pleasing Sausage from our great friends down at uh, Country Meat Packers, Henry Cooper in the game uh, down in Florence, Highway 49. And uh, I tell you what, just an unbelievable product. You know, and we talk about it each and every week. And each and every week we get the text and we get the tweets, hey, I tried Country Pleasing for the first time. Where can I get it? And, of course, it's in Kroger throughout the state of Mississippi and a lot of your local grocers. So Country Pleasing Sausage. That's what we put on the grill when we go to Boulder, to, uh, to Duty Noble when we're not broadcasting. So that's that's what we eat. So, Charlie, looking back, playing the last two games against Texas Tech down in Biloxi, and I'll tell you what, adding this ballpark in Biloxi to the rotation has been really good. The crowds in Biloxi in the midweek were unreal, and you had a lot of people from East Central Mississippi, spring break this past week, you had a lot of area high school baseball teams coming down here to play baseball. And so not only did you have a lot of people from the Gulf Coast, 
you had people from all over the state of Mississippi coming down this past week to watch this Texas Tech series, and we had some unreal crowds. And you had a lot of high school baseball players here as well. Yes. Look, this is a game playing in this stadium that is good for a lot of reasons. One, Mississippi State has a lot of fans in this area, and you want to expose the product to them. You know, we love for them to watch, and they text us on when we're doing TV. But it's great for them to be able to see it in person and to use this really nice facility. But you know what? There's about 60-some-odd high school teams playing baseball down here. Yeah. And, look, some of those kids are even younger, and they're playing ball down here. And the more you can expose and make Mississippi State baseball part of their life, I think it's a good thing. I think it's very important to get out and play games away from home. Love the idea of coming down here. And for so many years, you played at Smith, Wills, and Jackson. You played Ole Miss, but we also played the Jackson Mets. And I look back to, you know, when when you and I were growing up, I mean, that was one of the things that was a big-time deal in the 80s was being able to play the Jackson Mets. And and going to Jackson, it was a big deal to play at Smith, Wills at the time and playing Ole Miss in the Mayor's Trophy game. But then also, for the people in the Mississippi Delta, it was coming to Greenville. Yeah. It seemed like every year. And so that was the great thing. It was almost like that old barnstorming idea. You've got spring break going on on campus. Let's take the show on the road. And that's what's made it so great is you've got AutoZone Park in, in Memphis. We can play UAB at Regents Park in Birmingham and then at Pearl as well. And you've got tremendous ballparks that you can go and, and bring Mississippi State fans to to watch in a very comfortable atmosphere. Well, I'm still particularly upset about the 1897 forfeit to Ole Miss in Columbus. Uh, that's a game that uh, I, I still have problems with. The lights were probably <laughs> not good that day. You know, the it's interesting. If you go back into the history of Mississippi State baseball and you start looking through the places that Mississippi State has played in its history, Boonville, uh, you've played in Columbus, you've played in Natchez, you've played in Meridian, and in the old days – that's how baseball took place. In fact, there was a series against LSU that took place in Brookhaven and in Macomb. And so that's how baseball, even at the pro level, even at the semi-pro level, if you go back and read, baseball took place around the country, around in, around the countryside for that matter. And for Mississippi State, you mentioned this one. That was the Jackson Mets. The Jackson, I'm a, I love minor league baseball. But the Jackson Mets was the double, double A affiliate of the New York Mets. And a lot of the names that people in our generation knew, your Lenny Dykstra's, your Daryl Strawberries, you know, all those guys came through and played for the Jackson Mets. And in 79, 83, and at some point in the late 80s, Mississippi State actually played. In fact, I remember Tommy Raffo hit two home runs against the Mets. And, of course, let's go back. Another thing is 1983. So here's the connection. Everybody thinks that Will Clark was the first baseman of that 1983 team, and he was after Chris Maloney got sick yep. and had to come out of the lineup. Con Maloney, Cowboy Maloney, was the owner of the Jackson Mets, and so we actually played and won that game, I think, 9-2 to two in 83, won it in 79, and then won it big in, in the late 80s. That was so big. I mean, wasn't Roger McDowell from Jackson? You had Roger McDowell, who was the big reliever for the – for the Mets, but but anyway, yeah. I mean, you start thinking back to, I mean, we played all those great series in the Superdome, and when I was in there this past year watching the Saints play, you, you just sit there and you think about, you know, watching Mississippi State open its season against LSU, and you had those three games you played LSU, New Orleans, and then Tulane, 
And the Winn-Dixie Showdown. The Winn-Dixie Win Showdown. Lyle Mouton hit one that I think put a dent in the side of the uh, of the Superdome down there. We played in Minneapolis. I mean, we went out to, to L.A. a few years ago and played Dodger Stadium. I did that game on the radio. And Gavin Collins, who's a native of the, the Los Angeles area, he hit a home run in that game. I mean, there's nobody there. But we tied that game. We ended up tying that game 6-6. Six to six. And when the game was over, we had flight, and Oklahoma had a flight. And as soon as the game's over, everybody is hustling to get out of the ballpark, completely hustling to get out. And no, it's almost like nobody cared. I mean, I hate to say it like that, but everybody was trying to make their flight. And uh, I'd never seen a game end in a tie before. And everybody, everybody was like, well, you know, what do we do here? Wait, think about this. From 1980 to 1985, Mississippi State played Arkansas in Greenville, Mississippi every year. Also played Delta State in some ball games in Greenville. Imagine if Chris Lamonis or John Cohen were to <laughs> announce next week that Mississippi State's going to be facing off against Arkansas in Greenville or Cleveland or anywhere else for that matter. People would lose their minds. But that's, you know, we think back of in many ways, about those being some of the glory days of our memories. But that's what it took to make college baseball what it is today, to turn it into a program that can fill up stadiums like this one and have the big crowd was getting out and exposing it to people. You know, the thing I like about coming down here is it's a spring break deal. Texas Tech had a lot of fans as well. And and so you bring them to the Mississippi Gulf Coast. And this these – Two games were supposed to be, what, Louisiana Monroe and Louisiana Tech. And something happened with the scheduling, and then all of a sudden Texas Tech says, hey, we can play you guys that week. Sold. Absolutely. And that's the thing. You look back at this past week in winning against Texas Tech. This was a team that in two of the polls, two of the legitimate polls, were the number two team in the country. And we talk about the great crowd about being you know, in Biloxi this week. You had top two top 15 teams in America playing in this minor league ballpark. And here's the thing it also tells you, and, and this is great. The people in Biloxi have been great. The people in Pearl have been phenomenal. You know, you've got a great ballpark in, in Memphis as well and in Birmingham. But it also makes you appreciate what we have. And that's traveling around the country and seeing the minor league ballparks that you're playing in right now. This is a double-A ballpark in Biloxi. It's a triple-A ballpark in Memphis. Now, Memphis is a phenomenal place. Don't get me wrong. Jackson's double-A. I mean, these are guys who have made it past, you know, just getting a cup of coffee in the minor leagues. This is double-A baseball. And to see what we get a chance to walk into every, each and every week to broadcast, that kind of throws you back a little bit of, hey, just how special this place is. Look, I have been to as many minor league ballparks as most people. I've watched the Hickory Crawled <laughs> ads. I've watched the Toledo Mud Ends. Even saw the Savannah Sand Nats. So I've done my time. What? And, what kind of hat do they have? Oh, it was great. The colors were bad, though. Green green, and kind of a yellow thing. It wasn't, it wasn't the best. They did have a nice Nat logo. But, you know, when you get down to Florida for minor league baseball, everybody's using the major league spring break stadiums. And so what you have are nobody there nice facilities with <laughs> friends and family. And, and most not of even the that. friends don't show up. Yeah. And, and the family's just there for the weekend. And so you play in front of 10, 15 people. And double-A, you start to get some decent crowds. But I say all that to say this. Over the years, Mississippi State's played in a lot of those stadiums. Mississippi State fans have a lot to be proud of with what they have because 
short of going to the major leagues, it's the finest facility in the country. Tell you what, it makes you feel a lot better after you win. That's the positive. You got great crowds. You won two games at Tech against Texas Tech, and so that makes you feel really good. It's that's a look back at Bulldog history, brought to you by Country Pleasing Sausage, friends uh, down at Country Pleasing, Henry Cooper and the gang on uh, Highway Forty Nine South in Florence, and uh, you're listening to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. Welcome back to Out of Left Field. Time for our Heartland Catfish Hotline. And this week, brought to you by the great people over at Heartland Catfish in the Mississippi Delta between Itabina and Greenwood. And uh, they bring us this segment every week where we have a chance to talk to a former Bulldog great. This week, it's Bo McGinnis, super agent in Major League Baseball. And before we do that, I'd like to remind you, and Charlie picks at me all the time. He gives me this hard time because I'll always know these great places to go eat. And the best place for some Heartland catfish, if I'm going to Fayetteville, Arkansas, or I'm going to Little Rock, is pulling off in Carlisle, Arkansas, Nick's Barbecue and Catfish. It is absolutely amazing. I make sure you go in there. Get as much catfish as I possibly can, as I possibly can. They have great barbecue as well, but they have the finest catfish, and it's all served fresh from Heartland Catfish in the Mississippi Delta. Well, let's go to the guest line where former Mississippi State student, manager, bulldog, and uh, Bo McGinnis, a major league super agent right now. Bo, looking back at coming to Mississippi State, what was the the thing that really stood out to you about? You know, coming to Mississippi State, how did you end up a Bulldog? And, and how did you decide, hey, I want to be a baseball agent one day? You know, it's such a blessing. Um, I, I tell folks quite often, I when I was eight years old, I was a little boy down in uh, Atlanta. And my dad had shared with me that, it, it, uh, that Mississippi State had recently hired a new baseball coach who had been speculated in the Atlanta newspaper prior as – possibly being a candidate for the Atlanta Braves manager, uh, was a guy who had been the head coach at Georgia Southern. And, of course, that was Coach Ron Polk. And me as an eight-year-old, hearing that a, a guy was considered to be the Braves manager uh, was hired as a college coach, I just thought that was a big deal. My family moved to Virginia when I was 11. And when I was 12, Santa Claus brought me the Ron Polk playbook. And I was just hooked at that point that I wanted to be a college baseball coach. So um, throughout high school, I played basketball. But in the springtime, I asked the coach if I could be the student manager because I wanted to be Ron Polk. And then I later wrote Coach Polk a letter and went down and interviewed for the job and became the manager there and um, was one of the best decisions of my life. And I loved my years there. And it was just during that time, some of the guys actually kidded me that I was going to be their agent when we got out of school, but we didn't really know what one was. And uh, my last year in particular, in 1989, we were number one in the nation. And there were days we would come in the locker room and there'd be three, four, five, even six guys that would have a letter in their locker. And, um, it, you know, they would all have the same letter. It would be from an agent who was sending out form letters and, they had opened them up and it would say, Hey, I'm so-and-so's agent. And, you know, the guys would think it was neat to receive those letters, but again, they didn't really understand what an agent did. And so they'd just throw the letter away and just think it was a neat thing. 
Um, but then when we got to the draft that year, we had uh, quite a few guys drafted. And, um, I, you know, I know you guys remember that team well. Of course, back then the SEC roster was 22. And 17 of that 22 in 1989 went on to play some level of professional baseball, uh, which is really remarkable. And so it was as we got into that, but of course those guys were drafted in June of 89. It was later that summer that uh, folks were chasing after the, the great Pete Young. And Pete said to me, he said, I don't want these strangers telling me what to do. If I'm going to trust anyone with my business, it's going to be you. Um, and of course, I, I did not even know how to be an agent. And I told him that. And he said, that's okay. I trust you and you'll take care of it. Um, and so it just kind of took off from there. Bo, a lot of people look and see Major League Baseball agent the way they see Major League Baseball player. They they forget about the trip through the minors. I remember following you and your kind of track to becoming an agent. There was a trip through or two through the minors for you as well, I'm guessing. Absolutely was. I, I call those my peanut butter years. Um, you know, you know, I was fortunate. I, I went to, when I left state, I went to Vanderbilt and Nashville to go to graduate business school and get my MBA. And, um, you know, I started working with Pete in that fall. And then the next spring, it was actually Jody Hurst and Barry Winford. Jody in particular, he said, Hey, if you're going to be Pete's agent, I want you to be my agent. And yeah, you know, I, I didn't know what I was doing. And so I, I actually went to the, um, the business school library at Vanderbilt, they had a book on sports careers and it, it said uh, for each career, it gave the average salary for each. And it also told how to enter that industry. And when I got to sports agent, it said the way to become a sports agent was to get a player. That was all it said. <laughs> um, and then with regard to average salary, it said $40,000. And I thought, that can't be right. All sports agents are millionaires. Um, but I quickly realized that's not the case. And to take it a step further, since I didn't really know what I was doing and there wasn't a book to read or a course to take on how to be an agent, I called Coach Polk and I said, hey, Coach, this is getting serious. You know, these guys are asking me to, to play an important role in their lives, and I really don't know what I'm doing. And Coach Polk gave me some great advice. He, he said, call everyone you know in professional baseball. They all interact with agents in different ways, and so learn from their experiences. And so I called different scouts and, and front office folks that I knew, or I really didn't know them. It was more so Coach Polk knew them, and he made the introduction for me. But the most important phone call I made was actually to Jeff Brantley. And Jeff was the guy who said to me that the, the agent business was screwed up, that an agent's supposed to be a professional like a doctor or a dentist. And he said, as you can imagine, if you moved to a new town and wanted a dentist, you wouldn't have someone knock on your door and say, hey, I'm Babe Ruth's dentist. Let me be your dentist. Uh, instead, you would seek out the best guy. So Jeff told me then, he said, hey, if you're going to do this, I don't want you to write or call anyone. I don't want you recruiting players. Just take care of the ones you have now, and it'll take care of itself. Well, he hurt my feelings when he said that because I thought no one knows who I am, so this is going to work out. Um, and yet he was 100% right. I love those first guys like brothers, and next thing you know, their teammates observed it, and more and more of them hired me. So by the time I got out of Vanderbilt, I had 12 clients. 
but they were paying me a grand total of zero. They were all in the minor league. So I actually took a job working the front desk at the Hilton in Nashville to support myself and did that the first three years of my career. Had my fresh, brand-new Vanderbilt MBA, and yet I was working the front desk at the Hilton to try to keep myself going. We're talking with Major League Baseball agent Bo McKinnis. Uh, Bo, I, I know that you, you represent a lot of former Mississippi State players, and you've been in Phoenix, and you've been in Florida uh, a lot over spring training. Who have you been able to see, and how are some of those guys doing? Uh, just last night I had dinner with Hunter Renfro, who's starting his new beginning with the Tampa Bay Rays and doing quite well. And um, it was a lot of fun. We finished up dinner last night. We were walking out, and Nathaniel Lowe was sitting at another table. So we got to go by and say hi to Nate. And uh, Hunter had just told me during dinner how much he's enjoying being on the same team with Nate and um, how much they've, they've been following the Bulldogs. Um, I saw Jacob Robson three nights ago, and um, I don't know if you heard in the news, Jacob actually took a line drive off the face uh, in the dugout. Yeah. He was in the big league dugout with the Tigers and um, got a concussion. So he's been on the sidelines the last week and a half, but, uh, is progressing well and hopes to be back in the lineup here in the next few days. Um saw uh, Jacob Lindgren out in Arizona, and he looked outstanding. Um, he's a true candidate to make that White Sox bullpen, uh, so that's exciting. And I uh, got to see Brandon Woodruff throw a good inning out there, and he's going to be leading the Brewers' rotation. So it's just fun to run into these folks and to get to spend time with them. And, um, you, know, you know, I told Coach Polk years ago, I said my – my goal is not necessarily to represent every Mississippi State player, but it's just a, uh, an added blessing when I get to work with one because it just gives me more time than Starkville, but also uh, just gives me something in common with these folks we get to have fun with. And um, I'll be having dinner with Adam Frazier tonight and then see Jonathan Holder tomorrow. Bo, as growing up as a kid, the things I always looked at for a baseball player were batting average, home runs, RBIs. The game has changed a lot now. Analytics, talking about things that I'd never heard of, like OPS and batting average on balls in play, things like that. Analytics have really changed the way Major League managers now handle their rosters and their game decisions. How have they impacted the agent business? It, it really has, and it, it's some, some good, some bad. Um, you know, as, as we go through the salary arbitration process each winter, which is probably the, the most significant uh, work that I do and the most time-consuming work I do. Uh, for the first 20-plus years of me doing this, the focus was what I referred to as baseball card statistics. You know, those, those basic statistics on the back of a baseball card were the ones we would argue. Now, so much of that has been thrown out the window. Uh, we're repeatedly told that wins don't matter for a pitcher. Um, and as, as you say, the, those, those new age things, in particular the war statistics, they keep coming up. Um, and it, it can be frustrating because you can have a guy who um, puts up some, some very real numbers, uh, the 100 RBI numbers that we grew up as kids thinking was a magic number, um, and it's not appreciated as much. Um, so that there's definitely good and bad to it. Uh, I, um, I can shoot holes in a lot of arguments. Um, you know, certainly lots of times folks will argue about a player's war, 
And an easy way to shoot that down is to, in turn, ask the individual to explain to you their calculation of war, uh, because there's very few people that can actually just fit it off the top of their head. Um, that you know, the OPS number you mentioned, I I actually like that one. Yet at the same time, you could argue, you know, OPS is on base percentage plus slugging percentage. Uh, you can argue that someone just woke up one day and decided to add two statistics to each other. So you can certainly argue that it's good or, or argue that it's just some arbitrary motion there. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's a different time. It's a very, very different time. We're talking about Bo McGinnis. Bo, b- before we let you go, Major League Baseball has a high international presence. You know, what impact do you see that on college baseball? We were talking to Eric DeBose a couple of weeks ago. He was a six-round guy coming out of high school, turned it down to come to Mississippi State, and that was in 1995, and that was a big deal. And now you're seeing more and more players who may be drafted in the top ten rounds coming to college. Do those two kind of go hand-in-hand, hand and, and how does that work? You know, I, I – I'm still a believer that we should go to a worldwide draft myself. And, and that could certainly add clarity as to who's going to come to college and who's not. Um, it, it still baffles me that uh, we, we have some folks, a lot of the, the Japanese that will come over here and sign these huge free agent contracts their first day here, whereas the U.S. born players not allowed to do that. In, in that sense, I, I think we, we've got some room for improvement and, our, our next collective bargaining agreement will come up next year after 2021, and I think that'll get discussed again. I, I don't know that it's going to happen, but it will be discussed. Um, you know, certainly with regard to the guys who do come to college, you know, I, I'm the firm believer that you should. I, I have worked with a hun- 119 players who have reached the major league level, and only six have signed out of high school. Now, my numbers are very skewed uh, because – in general, I, I prefer the college player. They're, they're a little more predictable, uh, and they tend to be the more knowledgeable player. Um, but at the same time, the numbers kind of speak for themselves. Um, and, that, you know, the, the hot topic in the news, or one of the hot topics, has been Major League Baseball's desire to eliminate some minor league clubs. I, forgive me, I may butcher the number, but I think it's 34 minor league clubs they're trying to eliminate. And it was Donald Fear, the head of our players union, about 20 years ago. He told Major League Baseball, he said, if you're concerned about player development costs, you should make a greater investment into college baseball. Uh, college baseball has advanced to the level that it truly can serve as a rookie level or a low level A. And in turn, you don't need as many single A baseball clubs in, in the minor league. Bo, appreciate you joining us. Don't be a stranger. Thank you so much for having me. Love visiting with you guys. And once again, this interview brought to you by Heartland Catfish. And make sure to go by and get Nick's Barbecue and Catfish in Carlisle, Arkansas, the best catfish on I-40, that corridor between Memphis and Little Rock. Back with more on Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. Well, final segment here on Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. Farm Bureau, go with the home team, family and friends. we got a lot of family and friends that are Farm Bureau agents. We talked about Jeffrey Ray last week, and you got so many different people who have Mississippi State ties that are your team in your hometown. 
and that's Farm Bureau. Go with the home team. I'm Bart Gregory. He's Charlie Winfield. Charlie, looking at this weekend, Mississippi State and the Arkansas Razorbacks. And, you know, this is an Arkansas team, like Mississippi State, picked to finish high um, in the SEC this year, a team that was I mean, top ten, some cases top five, but they, like Mississippi State, have stubbed their toe just a little bit here in non-conference play early in the season. Yeah, it all started when they went to Minute Maid Park in Houston for a three-game set. They got beat by Oklahoma, uh, a 6-3 game, got beat by Texas 8-7, to and then dropped a game to Baylor 3-2. to So Oklahoma, Texas, and Baylor, very unkind. And then they came home and dropped a couple more. They lost to Illinois State. They lost to South Alabama before kind of getting things back together. They've won four straight since then, a couple against South Alabama and a couple against Grand Canyon. Didn't Ron Paul go to Grand Canyon? He did. So, anyway, another look back there. But it's a team that has some individual players who haven't performed as well as they would like to. It's a team that hasn't performed as well as would like to. And uh, maybe uh, maybe the Astros cleaned all the garbage cans out and they couldn't bang <laughs> on the garbage cans and steal signals while they were at Minute Maid Park. I don't know if they had a rough trip, and it's a time. Look, there's never really a time in my mind that you want to play Arkansas. They're a tough opponent whenever you play them. But I like the fact that you get them right off the bat, you get them early when maybe they're not yet playing their best ball. Uh, So many names that we've become accustomed to over the years with Arkansas. Uh, Heston Kerstad leading the way and hitting 448. Heston's been there, it seems like, 19 years. Six home runs, 20 RBIs. Leading the team at uh, hitting, as we said, with 448, um, and then you've got uh, you know Braden Webb and you know Casey Martin. He, he's a guy that's been there for 25 years. But Casey Martin, he, he struggled a little bit here early in the season, batting 271. But he always plays extremely well against Mississippi State. He does. He's a guy that's kind of taking a little bit of heat from their fans as well for not playing up to the level they expect him to. And you look at a guy who is catching heat. He's hitting 271. It's not like he's hitting a buck yeah. 50. Um, but when you've got a guy like Kerstad up there hitting 448, and, you know, this is a team as a, as a team hitting at 310 here early in the season. And so they've they've hit the baseball. They've hit it with some power. They've got 21 home runs as a team. And they've done a pretty good job pitching it. Team ERA is at about three and a half. Connor Nolan, freshman last year. He was all-freshman team. Uh all-American freshman, all-American last year. He um, you know, had six outings last year, five or more innings, and one of those was against Mississippi State. The Bulldogs, of course, did not play well last year at all in Fayetteville, have not played well in Fayetteville uh, the last couple of times up there. And so, Charlie, they've got the right-hander Nolan. We've got the left-hander Christian McLeod. That Friday game, first time you're going to play a Friday night game this year. We've been playing all of our Friday games in the afternoon. The lights come on on Friday, 6.30 start. And so that first game is going to be so important when you have Nolan, that right-hander, 6'2". He's not a, over, he's not a huge guy up on the mound, but he really works well. And, um, and here's yeah. the thing about Nolan that causes you some concern. It's a guy um, you expect to go about six innings. That's where he goes on average, maybe even seven. But he's a strikeout guy. You know, he struck out 19 guys in 18 innings. And you look at Mississippi State, you've been susceptible at times to the strikeout. We've had some weekends where you look at the strikeouts and you add them up and you're at 35, 36, 37. 
and you're going to have to come out ready to to swing the bats uh, on Friday because Nolan, a guy that can throw it past you, and he doesn't he doesn't beat himself. He doesn't walk guys. He's only walked four, and so it's a guy who's going to throw it in the strike zone and challenge you as a hitter. And the Bulldogs are are going to have to find a way to put the bat on the ball. You're going to have three guys hitting over 300. You've got um, Foskey, Westberg, James. You know, Hatcher's right there at it, and so. Lineup-wise, when you look at this past weekend and you get to Sunday and you're playing Quinnipiac and you start seeing some differences in your lineup, and for the people who are saying, Chris Lamonis, you got to do something, it seems as if he is trying to find every button he can to push right now. He's mixing and matching his lineup. He, he's trying to find an answer right now at the corner outfield positions. He is. I mean, look, go back to that ball game on Saturday when you were trying to pull something out. You're sending guys to the plate that you only knew about from fall practice. Yeah. And so he's going as deep as he can. He's trying different things. You know, Hatcher looked pretty good the past two days. Yes. You know, particularly tonight in the ball game, goes two for four and drives in a couple. Had that big hit, that double to right field, that got over the head of the right fielder. And Hatcher, a guy to me, who just seems to be – a little bit of a streaky hitter. He's a confidence guy. And so you're going to need Hatcher with every bit of confidence because you go back early in the season, you saw Josh Hatcher at the bottom of the order. Look, he is at the point right now, both in his career and with the position of this baseball team, he is going to have to establish himself in that 3-4-5 spot if the Bulldogs are going to have success. For the most part, Arkansas, when you start talking about Nolan, I mean, the, the trouble that we've had so far this year, the kryptonite has been from the left-handed pitching. And when you start looking at the lineup and, and you see, you know, Josh has really struggled against left-handed pitching. Now he did a much better job in the Saturday and Sunday game this past weekend against Quinnipiac. But there's still some questions there. You talk about Brandon Pimentel, who's had some trouble seeking spin from the left side. It's just a different animal when you get to this level the left-handed pitching sometimes is what really kind of dominates you a little bit, even if you're a right-handed hitter. And, it, and that's been the case because you look at how Mississippi State has hit this year, even the right-handers, we've really been susceptible to the left-handed pitching. When you look at the splits for Mississippi State, it is not encouraging when you think about facing a good left-hander. And, you know, you'll probably see Wicklander on the mound. He's a, a sophomore uh, for Arkansas, and so you're going to have to navigate that. But all that being said, I would if I'm if I had my pick, I would rather face the best guy you've got from the right than have your best guy be a lefty right now. So after 16 games, after non-conference play, and of course you have some non-conference left in a year in the midweek, but we've made it to the point of getting to SEC play now. How do you feel about this team going into conference play? Because when you look at it, and we said last weekend, hey, you know, it's going to ratchet up. And we started with Texas Tech. Look at Texas Tech, then you play Arkansas at home, then you play southeastern Louisiana, which is always tough to play at Hammond, and then you go to Baton Rouge. The thing about all of those games is you're not playing teams that are dominant, Okay. Texas Tech to this point has been pretty good, though. I mean, they've won like 12, 13 in a row, 12 in a row before losing in the first game down in Biloxi. But these are teams that you can beat, but the last thing you can afford to do is really get behind the eight ball here in the first two weekends of SEC play. Yeah, it's going to be really tough if you do. And 
how do you feel about this team? Well, for me, this is the thing that I preach against. I say all the time that baseball is a game that's going to even out. You're going to have your good days, your bad days, and you can't read too much into any one game. But here I am. I'm reading too much into these past two games. I Look, you just played a very good team, and you beat them playing good competitive baseball. We're not talking about 9-8 shootouts where both teams are throwing the back of the bullpen and things are going crazy. These were two teams that went after each other. Now, you didn't throw McLeod, obviously. You're not throwing your weekend starters. But both teams gave it everything they had. This was a good hitting team that Mississippi State came in, and you saw them control them, and you saw players come up with big hits. I feel better. I do. I I, I feel a lot better, to be honest with you. It's amazing what two games can do because Texas Tech – didn't give you a whole lot. Now they walked some guys in the Tuesday night game. But as far as they played very good in the field, they pitched it okay as well. But the way you pitched it this weekend, or during the midweek, and the way your pitching is set up so far, I like McLeod. I like his moxie on the mound. I just like his demeanor. I like the way he works. He's got something, man. He's got something. And I tell you what, you know, we've said the same thing early in the season about Landon Sims, and Will Bednar so far has shown that as well. You've got guys that have shoved it in the zone. Now the question becomes, you know, a McLeod, a Bednar, a Landon Sims, these guys who have been so good at just shoving the strike zone. Now, all of a sudden, they're going to play a team and some teams where you've got some guys where if you make mistakes in the middle of the plate, they can make you pay for it. Kerstad is a guy. Kerstad's a guy. If you, if you throw in the inner third of the plate, he's going to hit it way out of here. And think about Sarantola on Sunday right now. What have we talked about with him? We have talked about the need to be able to throw strikes. Well, once you get to SEC play, it's not about just throwing strikes. It's about throwing the right strikes because in many cases uh, in the SEC, hear me out when I say this, you can get beat throwing strikes a lot quicker than you can throwing the ball out of the zone. Absolutely. If you do not throw the right kind of strikes, a ball in the middle half and in against Herstad, and Herstad, and you're toast. So this weekend it will be Friday night, 6.30, Saturday at 1, and then Sunday at 1.00. Charlie and I have the Friday-Sunday game. They've got real folks coming in uh, for the uh, Saturday game. So, anyway, busy weekend, big weekend on campus. The SEC home openers, Mississippi State and Arkansas. Appreciate our fine friends at uh, Farm Bureau once again for what they do for us. And, of course, our final segment always brought to you by our friends at Farm Bureau. Go with the home team and check them out at favorites.com. Charlie, it flew by again. Enjoyed it as always. See you Friday. Another one in the book. Mississippi State and Arkansas this weekend, then southeastern Louisiana in the midweek next week on Wednesday. For Charlie Winfield, I'm Bart Gregory. Appreciate you hanging out with us on Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau.